So today I've got, well, I didn't really know who Bob was until a couple of months ago when Bob was on my show and we had a, uh, sorry, not on my show, on his show. And we had a really interesting conversation about all kinds of stuff. And then as a, you know, as a return favor, we had a really good conversation. I said, right, come on my podcast. And then I started doing a bit of research about Bob. And then I listened to a couple of podcasts that Bob's been on. And then I read his website and then I saw his full story. And I knew that this episode had to be about a little bit about adversity and also fulfillment coming out of the other side. Cause this is the whole yin and yang thing of these two things. I'm not going to spoil the story because I want Bob to tell it. This is, Bob is probably my new hero, and he's probably the most inspiring person who's been on the podcast in terms of what he's faced in his life. And yeah, I'm I'm not going to go on for any longer. I want Bob to tell this story. So yeah, here we go. Hello. Greg, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I don't know what, uh, I don't know what's more, puts more pressure on me, that introduction or the music, man. I love how your show starts. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've got to be upbeat and, and kind of really interesting and, and have loads of cool stuff to say now. Although I usually feel that and most of my other guests do. So I guess. <laughs> well, you've also had quite a bit of, uh, quite a long list of, of pretty prestigious guests. So I, I'm feeling it, man, but I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah uh, there's no there's no pressure we're just here to have a conversation that's the way that these always go um i want to get straight into this i i don't want to do the usual hello bob how are you doing oh you're from florida what's the weather like in florida oh the weather's nice in barnsley i really want to make this episode about two things nice. mainly but you know we'll have some fun in between this um about adversity and fulfillment and Another thing I was researching when I was, you know, looking you up, Bob D. Pasquale, that's a strange name. And the only other Pasquale that I know is a very bad British comedian that's called Joe Pasquale. (laughs) Uh, Really? Yeah, that's the only D. Pasquale I've ever heard of. Nice, nice. Well, I, uh, it's not popular. I'm the only D. Pasquale. Actually, no, there's one other D. Pasquale that I know, kind of on and off. One of the students at the school my wife teaches at, last name was deepest quality and they're gone now i think they graduated but anyway so i don't know any of them it's a little bit more popular in italy it's actually some italian heritage there and i believe it was spelled di before my grandparents immigrated to the u.s back back when they did right yeah i they see. changed it they changed it to de for some reason right so i, I want to get straight into this and i want to start with the sad part well not sad but you know downbeat part of the story most of these podcasts (laughs) don't usually start by this but i want to go right back to when you were 18 and okay well i don't even have to ask the question you tell the story from 18 you know what i'm talking about yeah i I know the story i was there believe it or not um (laughs) so so when i was 18 i was off to college you know in the u.s it's that's a big time for for a young person to get a chance to get away i was an only child I wanted to kind of get out of the house, live my own life a little bit. Not that I didn't enjoy my, my life when I was younger. My parents were awesome. But I had a chance to go off to, to university uh, in New York, which is where I was actually born. My family was, my extended family was all from there. And I had an opportunity to play American football there and 
learn and just spread my wings a little bit. So I thought I was great. Now, when you're an 18 year old boy, you're, you're pretty, you think you're invincible. You don't think anything can really take you down. So I, life was awesome. I got into the school that I wanted to go to. I was playing sports, living somewhere new, going to New York where everyone wants to go, right? It's an exciting place. And I was in training camp playing football. And now training camp in, in college is a little bit different than it is in high school or any other levels. And you're there for about a month and none of the regular students are there yet. This is before that universities forced kids to come to school the summer before they're even before their freshman year. So it was just us, maybe some other athletes, maybe the soccer team or some other, uh, some other people were there. And I had this injury. Now, if you're a, if you're a guy and you've ever pulled your groin before, I don't know, but you don't realize how much you use that muscle. Like I, you don't yeah. know that just to walk and stand up and do basic things is very, very challenging, but, and it kept getting worse. So I used to do this, I used to do this exercise uh, where if you have, picture a three wheeled stool and the trainers would have me push myself across this training room, that was a massive training room. And, and on any given morning during training camp, there's probably a, at least 50 people, maybe a hundred people in this room, trainers, athletes, you know, players, just all kinds of things going on, doctors. And I, and part of the exercise was basically just dodging the people, sliding myself across this huge room on this three wheeled stool. And it was immensely challenging. And this was supposed to be my rehab. This is what I thought was the, was the uh, state of the art rehab exercise. I did some couple other things was not working one day the head trainer stands up in front in, in the middle of the room at, like I said, six o'clock AM, maybe five forty-five, And somehow it just got randomly, just got deathly quiet. And he's like, Bobby, they call me Bobby, Bobby, why are you still in here? You need to be out on the field. You need to be practicing. And I went from being this confident 18 year old dude to all of a sudden the head trainers calling me out for how much of a weakling I am for not getting back out there and practicing. So I was like, Rick, there's something really wrong. So we ended up having a really uh, a serious or, uh, you know, a more formal conversation. And he said, all right, if there's really something wrong, I got to send you the doctor, sends me the doctor. I went through a series of tests and the day that my parents were coming up for my first ever college game, it was a Thursday. I'll never forget this. I had an appointment with, with a doctor to, to go over one of my tests and my mom, she calls me right after I left the appointment. Now it just so happened that this was the timing. She had flown in from Florida. They were in the car, my mom and my dad on the way to my uncle's house, we were, we were going to meet. And in that meeting, the doctor looked me in the eye and I remember I'm 18, didn't, was not expecting all that looks at me. I knew there was something wrong, but he goes, Bobby, you have cancer. And I was like, what? I mean, I just went from being on top of the world. Now, all of a sudden, I had this serious, potentially fatal illness. And I had to tell my mom this. And she's like, oh, hey, how's, how was your meeting? You know, what? because she was expecting maybe to find some positive news or maybe figure out what was going on. And I was like, mom, they, they, they told me I have cancer. And immediately, I could just feel her on the other side of the phone. Her head just drooped. She, you know, the, the demeanor changed completely. And I could hear my dad yelling from the other side of the, you know, in the car, Susan, Susan, that's my mom's name. What's wrong? And I could tell that there's problems. So we went back to my uncle's house. We meet there. And obviously we shed some tears. We were just confused. We didn't know what was going on. My parents hadn't seen my family in a while. So it was just this amazing emotional time of, hey, I haven't seen you in a while, but yet your, your son's got cancer. What are we going to do? Well, that was a Thursday, a couple of days the next couple of days were a blur that Saturday, 
my uncle's best friend who we didn't know because we didn't live in Florida. We never saw this guy comes over and gives my parents his keys to his car and says, Susan and Bob, I can't imagine what you're going through. Why don't you take my car so you can use it next week to go through all these tests that you have to go to. I'm going to be traveling. I don't need it. They were blown away and he left 15 minutes went by and he had just come by just to give, just to give them the car and said he wanted to head out. And we're like, oh, wow, thanks, Tim. I, I can't believe you did this for us. The next week comes, Monday, I went to my first ever college class, my oncologist. By, by now, I spoke with the oncologist, and he told me, well, you got to take a couple classes. You can't do nothing while you're going through treatments. You, you drive yourself up a wall mentally. Yeah. So I went to class on Monday, went to a bunch of tests. Next day, Tuesday comes, went to my second ever college class. When I came out, I went to the cafeteria to get something to eat. Now, Craig, I don't know if you remember those tube televisions that are like in the corner uh, on the ceiling of a, of a room, yeah, yeah. not like flat screens now. It was maybe 10 inches wide. So I'm squinting while I'm eating my breakfast, and I could see the news was on, and a plane comes along and hits the Twin Towers, one of the Twin Towers in New York. Now, remember, I'm in New York. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I can't imagine. So I called my dad. He was back at my uncle's house, and he said, did you see that? I said, yeah, I'm watching. I'm watching. He's like, you better come back to the house here. There's something, you know, that doesn't seem right. So I was like, all right, I'll be there in a little bit, whatever. And then all of a sudden, bam, the second plane hits the other twin tower. And we're like, okay, something's wrong. So I hightailed it out of there, hopped in the car, drove, started driving to my uncle's house. It was about 15 minutes away. It took me nine hours to drive. Now I'm watching what's going on in the distance. Cause I'm in New York and I drove to my uncle's house. I ran out of gas in his neighborhood and the whole time I, I listened to the whole thing and I, and I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism. I worked in radio. I will never listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. I mean, it was riveting, but I got to my uncle's house. We pushed my car into the driveway and people were panicking. My uncle was actually on business in Denver the night before we couldn't get a hold of him. He was supposed to fly back to New York. My, my aunt was panicking. And finally, about 5.30 o'clock, 5.30, 5, 5 o'clock in the afternoon or evening, my aunt gets a hold of my uncle. We're totally relieved. We couldn't, you know, we, we found him. He was okay, but we, they, he couldn't get a hold of Tim. And it turns out that Tim was in the towers that morning and he perished. And so we just met this guy, Tim. I was just diagnosed with cancer and 9-11 happens all in like four day period. And I was like, okay. I guess my life wasn't how I expected it was going to be. <laughs> so uh, that's my story. I was in 18 and it took me, it took me quite a while to recover from that mentally, even though physically here I am about 20 years later and, and I'm okay. So, you know, I can only imagine um, some of the other experiences that people have, but mine was pretty unique. Yeah. It's, it's insane. I just wanted to pick you up on one word you used. You said 18 year old boy. Do, do you, mm -hmm. do you, was that intentional? Do you see that now? Do you look back and think I was just a boy? I wasn't a man yet. Or, or is it yeah. just a choice of phrase? No, absolutely. Intentional. Absolutely a boy. I, I felt like I was invincible, but I was truly just a boy at that point. I, I mean, I know that people are growing up faster than ever. And we joke about that. And that's kind of a cliche term that parents say, Oh, my kids are growing up real fast they don't grow up by the time they're 18, especially emotionally. I just, I was not, I, you know, can I say I was ready for that? I don't know if you could ever be ready for that, but I definitely was in a state of mind where I just didn't understand the world at that point. Well, at, at that age, 
I mean, I always remember when I was 18, 19, 20, and I used to remember that when something happened, uh, I used to think, right, I've grown up now, I'm an adult. And then you'd hit 19 and you'd go, oh no, now I'm an adult. And then you'd hit 20 and you'd go, oh no, no, now I'm an adult. And that just seems to keep happening every single year of my life. I'm like 33 now and I still kind of feel like that's happening. So I, I think, yeah, you, you're probably right, you know you know very little. I think the most important point is you've faced probably no adversity when you're 18, right? You've lived in your parents' house, mm. not nothing, you know, you get given everything pretty much to that point. That's the first time when you've faced something, and this is an insane thing to face, let alone one thing, two things at the same time. Yeah, and the way that, the way that I look at it is this, I faced other sad times in my life up to that point, but all of them were things that are just part of life or expected. For example, my grandparents passing away or my dog dying or stuff like that. Like those were things that you pets, you know, passing away, anything like that, things that you disappointments in athletics or things that are expected. Those are just part of life. It's part of growing up. But what I, at 18, all that to happen at once. I mean, that just slaps you in the face. Like what, you know, here's, here's the world, Bobby, you know, 18 year old boy, Bobby, this is not, uh, you know, this is not sunshine and rainbows all the time. You, there, there are things that are going to happen. Now you have to learn to use them for positive experience and talk about adversity and finding your purpose. You have to use them in a positive way, but when you're going through them, they're, they're startling. They're just unexpected. What, what did you turn to, to try and get over that? Were, were you kind of somebody who felt a little bit like you were a victim of something or did, or did you quickly turn to something else for kind of support? Do you know what I mean? Yes. And I appreciate that question greatly because at the time I thought I was just going to turn to my own will and my own strength to just power through. And that's how, that's how I'm wired. I'm the type of person that just, you just do. I love the yeah. title of your show, get doing things because most of my life I just press through, I just handle it. And that's what I did at the time, or at least I thought I did. I was, I told my oncologist, I'm going to be the best cancer patient you've ever had. I mean, I looked him in the eye and told him this. He probably thought, who's this 18 year old kid's crazy. I'm working with people that, (laughs) that have all kinds of complicated diseases for years on end. And he's telling me he's going to be the best cancer patient. I followed the diet that he gave me to a T. I ate no sugar. I ate at the specific times of day. I measured my water to the ounce. I did everything you could possibly do. I showed up for my appointments. I mean, I, I, I did, uh, when we were in the, when we were in the appointments to do different treatments, I would explain to him in grave detail what I felt. I, I just felt like I was going to be the perfect cancer patient. And it, I felt at the time that that's what I needed to do. And it, and it worked, if you will, that that's how the way to handle it was. And I thought that's what I turned to. Turns out a couple of years later, I, I have, when I did some more deeper contemplation of that, it, there were other forces that I truly helped me make it through that point. But at the time, I thought it was me just being me, just like I did everything, whether it was school or sports, I'm just going to do, I'll figure it out and I can be better than anyone as long as I work harder. Where does that attitude come from? Is it from your parents or do you kind of feel like you was born with it? Or Because I feel very much the same. I resonate with mm-hmm. that, but... Where does it come from for you? I think some of it comes to being an only child where you just kind of figure things out. You, there's nothing to do. So you make something fun or you want something to happen. You want to play a game or want to play a sport. So you call everyone in the neighborhood and you, and you just put it together (laughs) or, 
uh, speaking of, I mean, I think, I think athletics shaped a lot of my brain when, when I was growing up, that's the way I think about things when it comes to collaboration, uh, and hard work and effort and having to prepare oneself. I think those are big lessons. And my parents also taught me kind of instilled those values me into me. My, my parents were very hardworking people. They, they, in the jobs that they always had, many of them were, uh, th- there was physical labor involved until my mom ended up ultimately working in a bank and she, there wasn't so much physical labor there, but in the positions that she had at the bank, I always remember her talking about people would come in and they would ask her questions about how can I better my financial position? And I always remember her saying, there was no way to do this by the book. I just had to figure it out. I just had to look at all the different options and ask questions. And that's how my mom learned. She no one sat and taught her how to do those things. She just kind of fell into this job, especially when uh, there was transition down here in Florida and she had to figure out how to do it. So I think it's my parents sports. And ultimately it was just kind of ingrained in me from a young age. And then when you play, when you, when, when you, when you play sports and especially team sports, that's the thing I love about team sports, because you have to learn how to collaborate and be part of a team. But if you don't do your specific job, you're going to be, you're going to be looked down upon, whether it's by the coaches or your teammates. So you got to figure out, you got to compartmentalize specifically what it is that you have to do and make sure that you do that well, so that you don't, that you don't let down all the other people. So always from a young age, that was my mindset. It's interesting what you say about learning, actually. It's weird because I was just having this conversation with somebody about an hour or two ago about this idea of learning by doing. Um, and, and, and the conversation I was having with him about trying to trying to deconstruct this idea of learning. I, I talk about this a lot on Twitter and I think Twitter, I think Twitter is quite bad for this. And this rise yeah. in cohort-based courses and people learning for learning's sake, learning for entertainment and never mm. doing anything with the knowledge. And I, I was trying to deconstruct this with, with a friend about, you know, why do people do this? Or what is the better way to learn something? And it is as simple as what you just said about your mom. It's about learning by doing. It's about the thing that people have done for thousands of years <laughs> where they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were in a tribe or whatever and somebody showed them a skill and then they went away and did that skill and got good at it. Or if they didn't get good at it, you know, they, potentially they died. So they, they, yeah. they just learned by doing. And I often worry that with, with kind of this, this rise, um, particularly over the you know, last year, all of us have been locked down and trying to, you know, change things and learn new skills and things like that. We, we're losing some of that doing thing if i could sit sit up and kind of shake everybody to just say don't keep learning just go do it don't keep learning just go do it i would but it's a bloody hard thing to say to people no it's hard and i'm glad you brought up how people are learning and and taking courses and i think i think there's different ways to learn my wife being an educator i've experienced this and i've had conversations with her about this she knows way more about it than i do but i think what's key about what you're saying is I think it's the purpose behind why they're learning things. And because of the speed of technology and information gathering and over overstimulation, in my opinion, writing about this in my book, I think it's very important to understand why you're doing something 
and the process along along the process and the journey along the way. It's great to have some end in mind. And I think a lot of people are taking courses and try to figure it out because they're looking at the end game and they're saying, oh, wow, I really want to be like this and I want to be here. But if you don't ultimately love it and enjoy the journey and the process, then it may not be something that something that it may not be your wheelhouse, it may not be where you should be spending the majority of your time because if it's just to reach the end, then you're missing something. I think it's so valuable to enjoy the process along the way. And if you just want to reach a certain place and kind of just warp there, if you will, you think that because we can learn something online in a, in a course that only takes a couple of weeks or even a few hours, and that's, and that's what you think it takes, it doesn't work like that. You have to execute the skills. And the people who love executing, the people who are the best of the best, and I always come back to, to sports examples, but it's just true. The people who are the best of the best in the world they're really good at something and they have a natural talent. Michael Jordan was an exceptional basketball player. Regardless, he could have woke up and um, done nothing in the gym and still been a great basketball player. But the reason why he's the best of the best is because he loved the grind. That dude was a hundred miles an hour at practice every day. I mean, he was working super hard because he loved doing more than anything. So I think it goes for anything, any task, any process that you're in. I don't know if my mom loved being a teller or a customer service representative at the bank, but at least, I mean, she sure acted like it. I mean, she really wanted to help those people. So there was no, there was no uh, process on the wall that said, okay, Susan, do this next. It was normally just figure it out. And she just loved the process of finding the, putting the different financial puzzles together to help people. Same concept. Well, I, th- I think it's a little bit, I think when she were looking at it, she probably looks at it a little bit like I do and probably you do as well, being action focused that no matter what it is that you're doing, you kind of try and see where the value of the task is and how you could use that in something else. So it, mm-hmm. it, even if you're a teller or a waiter, which was my first job, waiting tables, you're looking for the thing that you can take from that, that you enjoy doing that you can use somewhere else. Because there's always valuable skills in in anything that you end up doing, and mm-hmm. I, I think it it comes back to the process again, doesn't it? You might hate well, hate's a strong word, but you might not like the wider sense of the job, but you can see the value in the immediate process that's in front of you, and I think that's why mm-hmm. sports is is so valuable. I, I was never really a sporty kid, but when I got older and I discovered I discovered American football, that was the first one. When I discovered American football and got really into it, it was the fact that you'd be learning something and then applying it straight away. And I think that's what's really valuable about sports because you're completely right. When you're learning something without applying it, well, what is that? I call it entertainment. It is. It's digital hoarding. Ultimately, it's entertainment. But with sport, you are required in practice to learn something well, then practice it instantly. You do it, you drill it straight away. So it gives you that immediate feedback loop of learning and doing, learning and doing, learning and doing, which, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think, I think the best leaders and coaches of sports and, and business, they're the ones that are foster an environment of experience for the people that they work with. The best coaches, they reinforce the feedback loop while people are doing it. They're not explainers, they're motivators, and they help people figure out how to do it. And then even at the highest levels of business and sports, and even in the faith community, I've just, I've learned that the best leaders 
are the ones that enable people to experience what they're doing. They may, they provide feedback. They do things that they, they do some coaching, if you will, but it's less about diagramming things and more about making people enjoy the process and figure out the value. If you understand the value of something, it is just amazing power in the human mind to want to get something done when you see value in it. And just like you're saying, if someone, when you were waiting tables, you probably weren't thinking, man, I really want to make this restaurant a lot of money. That, that wasn't, it wasn't looking at the end game. It wasn't trying to no. jump to something. It was the, it was the activity of what you're doing at that moment. You saw, you found value in, and there's probably lessons that you learned there that you still apply to this day in your life. Yeah. I, I'm just, I was just frantically trying to find a quote from this learning conversation I was having earlier because I, when we were talking about learning, we kind of got in into a little bit about, you know, how teaching. So the other side of learning is teaching and mm-hmm. teaching is often kind of devalued by a lot of people. There's the, you know, the famous phrase, if you can't do teach and it, there's, there's an idea that people who teach can't do. And that's the reason that they've taught. And I hate that. I really hate that because <laughs> I found some of the most value in my life teaching people, passing on knowledge. Because, again, going back thousands of years, like that—that's that's the core of humanity, right? Is how humanity survives, passing on knowledge. And there, there's just there's nothing more rewarding, I don't think, than learning something and then passing on that knowledge to somebody. But I was trying to figure this out with with somebody. I'm just trying to find the the quotation now. Um, and and what he said was when we're thinking about learning in this way where people who who teach don't do he said the best teachers are examples so you know if you imagine the the best kind of teachers even leaders to this point they're not just teaching people they're not rote teaching somebody they don't just get out a textbook and say this is how you do it they actually mm-hmm. provide the example and and that that was it again it comes back to the doing thing the best teachers are the people who are also providing the example. They don't just say it. They don't just walk the walk. They talk the talk as well. Totally agree. I think a good example in my life of this was I, I have some professional de- designations that I've acquired over the years just in my career in the financial industry. And wh- one of them, I remember I went to a course towards the end of my, my training and I was there for a week. I actually went to New York. Speaking of New York, this is years after, <laughs> after 9-11 and all that happened. But I went back to New York and I was had to go for four or five straight days all day long to review this information so that I could take the test of a couple of weeks later, whenever it was. And the gentleman teaching the course was a brilliant guy. Actually, there were two of them. They, they rotated and they were really, really intelligent people. But everything that we went over was strictly basically rote memory. And it was their job just to spit it all out, write it all down and us to memorize it all. And I I had this conversation with the guy after the class one day, and I learned more in that hour that we were just talking about whatever we were talking about than I did in however many, what was that, 32 hours worth of class for the whole week. I mean, and, and that was only because we were just talking about practical application of everything, which didn't actually provide any value for me for the test and thank god i've ended up passing it but it was just a perfect example that his job where he was hired specifically to spit out and wrote information and have and help us memorize and tell us you need to memorize this for the test or else you're going to fail and that was needed i'm not saying it was a waste of my time because i needed to do that to pass this exam which has helped my career but 
it was a perfect example because we spent how many hours just, just drilling memorization. And then for that one hour, we talked about the career actually, and just kind of riffed on different concepts and how we can apply things. And I, I use more of that hour in the rest of my career than I do the, the whole other time I was there. It's because there's this focus in, in teaching a lot of the time that you need to, there needs to be a value to it, doesn't there? And the value, the way that the value is usually calculated is uh, by how thick the textbook is or how many things you get to learn, how many bullet points of things you get to learn. And then obviously it's got to get tested in an exam mm -hmm. or, or whatever. But the thing I always come back to all these years is that, Oh, your uh, your camera's gone off. <laughs> what happened? I don't know. It's just showing a. Oh, there we go. Oh, it switched to a different camera. Oh, it did. I don't know. <laughs> well, whatever. I'm here. I'm alive. It's it's all good. Yeah. The the thing the thing what I was saying is that after after going through the, the you know the whole teaching process at school and high school college and things like that, the the thing that I've taken away the most is those conversations. And I always thought, why is that? And it's because those conversations, you're talking about the fundamentals, aren't you? Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, it's the same when you come to sports and anything like that. The fundamental principles that you will learn, you know, if you, if you break things right back to, if you talk about American football versus, I don't know, jiu-jitsu, which is another thing that I know, the fundamental, one of the most basic fundamentals is balance across either of those sports is balance and positioning. Uh, you know, if you're going in for a tackle in American football, it's really important that you, you know, you're, you've got good balance and you're, 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 you're firmly on two feet, you've got a good stance and all that kind of thing. That alignment principle goes across to other sports as well. So when you learn those fundamentals, when you focus on those fundamentals, you can come back to them time and time again in any sport, in any area of life and things like that. But often when we, we take formal formal tests or formal learning and things, they don't teach you the fundamentals, do they? They focus on the skill, the relevant skill right now that's trendy or that goes out of, you know, that might might be out of date in a year or two's time. They don't teach you the fundamentals a lot of the time. They don't, they don't make it easy to apply. And, and a good teacher, a good learner have a, some kind of synergy there when that, when they're working together and going back to my, my wife and her family of educators, I've learned more about education from them. And, and it's, you really can see the parallels between teaching young people just about life and academics. You can compare that to teaching people in business or, or life about, about different concepts because when you give someone, it's so freeing. I, I love this. I use this word all the time. It's so freeing to provide someone the ability to experience. And I, I just, I find that in any of my conversations and you talked about other podcasts and the way in the meet this media world in the past 15 months or so, 16 months now with the pandemic, the, the people that I find are, are the most effective in learning and teaching online. They're able to translate that, that desire, that interest in the subject more than anything. And less, and I'm going to go back to this, less about the end game and more about the process. You know, if, you, if you're creating an online course, if the course is fun, 
and the course is enjoyable and it teaches you how to enjoy the process, it's going to do way better than it is if, okay, you can be, if you want to earn a million dollars by the time you're 30, or if you want to be able to, you know, to be the greatest speaker in the world or the greatest writer, or here's how you make an NFT and sell it for $150 million. Like it's gotta be about, this is how the process is enjoyable. Not I'm only doing this for something at the end. The the problem comes though, Bob, and when you focus on the process, the progress is much slower. And that's the bit that people can't hack because they haven't faced the adversity in their life a lot of people mm. like what you faced and they don't ever put themselves in a position to face, you know, obviously not getting cancer, but putting themselves in positions where they're going to face adversity so they can prepare themselves for a tough process. Because when you, I, I, w- I was writing about this the other day. Um, in fact, it was the last newsletter. Right? I called the the newsletter. You get the audience that you deserve. And the larger opinion behind that was that if you focus on the low-hanging fruit, you get a low-hanging fruit of an audience. And that can be applied much wider than that. So when we're talking about focusing on a process, I get, I've tweeted about this many times, I get like two, three, four, five followers every day on Twitter. That's a slow process. Slow progress, slow process. Hurts your ego every single damn day. (laughs) But... you have to you have to consider the reasons why you're doing something at least i do all the time i have to remind myself consistently the purpose for something and i, and I really do i find the things that I'm, i get antsy about that i want to happen now the vast majority of those things they're really they're they're they're, they're really not something that's going to really incrementally make my life better, if you will. The things that I'm comfortable taking the time doing that I know have a proven track record that I, that I know I'm seeing those little bits of improvement, but not feeling like I needed to go a hundred times faster. Those are the things that I know are part of my core learning experience. Those are the things that I, that I enjoy the most that I love being a part of that. I know that when I get up in the morning, I want to do, I had a conversation I think it was on Twitter the other speaking of Twitter the other day about how when you get up in the morning, the people who are able to make their mornings enjoyable tend to be just much happier throughout the rest of the day because they've started off with the things they enjoy. There's not going to be thing. Everything that you do during the day is going to be enjoyable. But if you start off the day with those things that you're talking about, like the, like for example, Twitter, if you know that your goal is to not have a hundred thousand followers on Twitter, but it's to increase your followers every day. And you kind of enjoy that process. That's great. That's something that's going to make the rest of the things that you do during the day, part of your enjoyment, because you know, the purpose for you doing that. If you don't have a, if you don't have a purpose behind the actual work, eh, I don't know if it's something that's that important. And I love, I love finding things like that. Now here's another key. I think you meant you did say, I do want to highlight the point that people have trouble with that kind of grind, if you will. They have trouble with that slow growth. They want immediate feedback. And that's somewhat the problem with social media these days. It provides immediate feedback <laughs> in some ways. But I think I think the other key is that the people who, who don't need multiple items. So for example, if you have two or three things that are really high on your list, 
that provides you the joy or the enjoyment that you need, though that's a much better scenario than needing 10, 15, 12 things. And someone like me, I'm a little bit scatterbrained. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about being determined to, to, to get things done, which is a great, a great trait to have in certain cases, but it also gets, keeps me distracted at times because there might be, like I said, 10 things at a time that I find that are, that are super interesting. And I want to just attack them all at once because that'll be fun for me. Sometimes you got to just slow down. You got to say, you know what? I got to find my top two or three concentrate on those first. And then if you perfect something and you get to a point where you don't need to pour as much time into it, but you still get the joy out of it. Okay, good. And then maybe add something else. You know, if you ever got to a point in Twitter where you said, well, I'm kind of rolling in Twitter I don't, I'm not looking, I'm not in growth mode. I just kind of want to let it, let it ride. Okay. Maybe you spend a little bit less time in it. I know that you put a lot, I know that you, you, you still sending out 10 tweets a day. Is that still your, your goal? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. But what if it got to a point where you're like, all right, I'm really happy where I'm at with Twitter. I got a good engagement. I only need to do two or three tweets a day, but it's still providing you the same results. Okay, so maybe now you could say, and now I want to concentrate on something else. But if you try to add in 15 things at once, there's just no way you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, I know. I completely agree. I think Twitter, for me, it's become not Twitter. So let me explain. So Mm -hmm. I'm still writing eight to 10 tweets every single day. I think the slots in my queue at the minute is eight. I think that's it. So I'm writing about eight tweets every day. And these are things that I have to pre-write and fill up the queue every single day. So they're not the tweets that I'm going on and replying to you, for example. They're actual original, well, not original thoughts, but, you know, thoughts that have come into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to do that every single day. It isn't so much about Twitter for me now. The f- it, it's... Um, it's the it's just, it's the process. It's the it's the fact that I have the thing. I, obviously, I enjoy writing these short snippets of things as well. But mm-hmm. I have this little public notebook of a thing. It's just a ritual. I, I tend to ritualize a lot of things. It's just a ritual for me where I, I sit down, usually on an evening or during the day, and I have a random thought, and I think, "Oh, that's interesting to me." So I'm going to tweet it, and I'm going to put it in the queue. So. It, it helps me focus my thinking a lot of the time because the Twitter, when I when I poke, poke a tweet out there, it's often the initial time that I've thought about the idea. So it, it's kind of like my per, per, um, public notebook, personal but mm-hmm. public notebook. And I'll be thinking about an idea. So a lot of the ideas that we've discussed on this podcast about learning and adversity and process and things like that, they're all thoughts that I've been chewing on for a while that I tweet about and I'll tweet about them once on one day and then I'll go back and I'll be thinking about it again and I'll go back through my tweets not to look at the engagement to look at the things that I've been thinking about and I go back through them and think ah yeah I remember thinking about that Uh, and (laughs) it makes me think about it a bit more and then I jump on a podcast like what we're recording now and I think about it a little bit more and I talk about it with somebody now and then the, the whole Twitter thing for me really is kind of like this. Uh, I heard somebody call it on, on Twitter earlier, an idea refinery. And, and, and Twitter's kind of the first step in the idea refinery for me. I think about an idea, I, I post nonsense, and then it, it turns into something else over a longer period of time. So 
Twitter has evolved for me now. It isn't about the growth at all. Nobody ever believes me when I say it, but it isn't about growing it. It is literally about the first step in a conveyor belt of an idea refinery for me. Do, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. I like the word or the term idea refinery. And and the cool thing about Twitter, and this is nothing new. I mean, it, I, this is not me coming up with a great with an amazing idea. But the cool thing about Twitter is that there's so many people out there that you can engage and you can truly refine ideas. And I give you a lot of credit. There's a lot, there's a lot of wisdom in a lot of the tweets that you send out. I mean, I'm, I'm always laughing. I mean, you're always give, you're always giving me a good uh, a good sense of humor there when when you're tweeting. But there's 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 wisdom in there too because you're able to connect basic you know concepts of life that are happening. Uh, but apply them in a really short way on Twitter. And then, and then there's always comments and people are going to get back to you about what is happening. And so you're refining those ideas and some of the best leaders and thought, you know, the best, some of the best thought leaders in the history of the world are able to take simple concepts that could be humorous. They could be emotional. They could be something like my story, right. Of, of, of illness and, and tragedy there, but they're able to, to create, a message or not even create extract is probably the right word extract a lesson and a message from those things. And that's why Twitter's cool because there's another, how are, how many users does Twitter have now? How many hundreds of millions that other people that could look at what you said and, and granted, not all of them are going to look at it, but there's a, there's plenty of people out there, thousands that are going to look at that tweet and can find a message out of it. And not only are they going to get a message out of it, they can respond and then you can learn from it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to a point you you made earlier, which is about doing doing the things that you enjoy and trying to fill fill up your time with doing the things that you enjoy. I really enjoy I don't really enjoy every single moment of writing a tweet. I think there's always there's always that I want to make this connection in a minute, but let let me proffer the idea. I think there's mm-hmm. always this connection you have to have with fulfillment so I, I get very fulfilled by writing tweets but there's also adversity involved in it as well because of the fact that i need to write eight of them every day so and I, and i think the two are inextricably linked i think you need a little bit of adversity to find mm-hmm. fulfillment in something if something's too easy it's not fulfilling so i i, I think the thing with twitter for me and some other people might write in a personal journal or, or whatever but it's the fact that there's a little bit of adversity that I can handle every day on Twitter where I have to find an idea to talk about and, mm-hmm. and then I can talk about it. Um, is that kind of fulfillment for you? Where you Is that what you see fulfillment as now? You know, going through the worst kind of adversity, do you see fulfillment as spending as much of your time as possible as doing the things that you enjoy? Definitely. But I also think you made a good point about there's got to be some kind of challenge in it too. Because, and there's some kind of spectrum here. I don't know if it's, if it's correlated one-to-one, but the amount of adversity that you go through to get something done, the more adversity seems to be the more, the more fulfillment that there is. And I'm sure there's research on this too. But I find that, that the things that I enjoy the most are not easy, yeah. right? And when I say enjoyment, I think I, I get into this conversation with people occasionally as well. Enjoyment and fulfillment does not mean simple, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean I have to find something like if someone says, well, Bob, you know, I want to be fulfilled. Like I want to have more joy in my life. The answer is not 
I want to watch Netflix all day, or I want to, you know, have, I want to party all day long and never work, or that's, that's not fulfillment. Fulfillment is actually realizing your potential and feeling that you've done a good job with whatever it is that you do. And so if you find joy in something, it doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, some of the hardest things in my life now, do I want to go through what I went through when I was 18 again? No, but thinking about what I've gone through that story. And that's in that system that has helped other people. It's also helped me with other aspects of my life and, and mindset and perspective. Uh, there is some joy actually, believe it or not, that I, that I find in what I went through there. So the other things in life that provide joy are not as extreme as that, but they do provide challenges. They help you understand how to overcome things. And I find that it's just resonates more with, with more people, the more real you are, if you've gone through something that you can kind of humanize that people can understand, that's great. No one wants to hear me talk about any triumphs that I've had in my personal life and business without understanding what it took to get there. Mm. Right. There's nothing, nothing great. I truly believe there's nothing great happens without adversity. Nothing just great just appears right? We have to learn from something. And if something, if you win the lottery, that's not great. Okay. That that's lucky. There's a, there's a drastic difference between that. But if you made a fortune over the years, because you worked really hard creating something, that's great because you put the work in to get there and you had to go through tough times. I mean, the best entrepreneurs, the best business owners, you all hear about the struggles that they go through. You got to fail a hundred times to, to succeed once. And you know, I don't want to get into cliche, uh, motivational talk, but it's, some of it is very, very valid. I think, I think there's absolutely joy in the struggle. Hey, yeah, I, I agree. And I think it always, it comes back to the story, doesn't it? We, we, we only connect with somebody and it's why I wanted you to start with the adversity. We only connect to somebody when we understand that they've gone on the hero's journey, when mm-hmm. they've faced adversity, they've been at the lowest point in their life. They've come out of the other side, uh, experienced some level of success and that there has to be this adversity in the middle there somewhere there has to be you know this difficulty otherwise the story just isn't interesting and we look at everybody this way and we can't help it we're story driven that that's how we are as as as, a, as that's how our brains work so we want to yeah, understand that's how the human that's how the human race is story storytelling is is a superpower i mean it's one of the most pow- it's probably the most powerful uh form of influence i think is being able to tell a good story with with a good message so people can understand how and it goes back to learning again you got to understand the journey the story is not steve jobs created apple the story is Steve Jobs was working in his in his garage and had to recruit people to help him and had to fail multiple times and had to be had to have uh, relationship issues like all of those things are part of the journey. It wasn't. It's not just okay. There's hundreds of billions of iPhones that have been ever sold. Great. Who cares? I, yeah, I, I'd go one step further on that point and say that as soon as you achieve success, the story isn't interesting anymore. <laughs> Nobody wants. To, well, people want to hear the hap- happy ending, but they don't want to hear the happy ending continuing for another 20 years. They don't care about <laughs> that bit. They want you to see you go from happy ending to, oh, no, he's, he's facing another struggle. Now this story gets interesting again. That, mm-hmm. it, it just universally applies, doesn't it? I don't, I, don't, I don't care about Apple now that they're one of the most successful companies in the world. It's dull, mm-hmm. it's dull to me. 
I'm looking for the other tech underdog that's a little bit more interesting, that you can see the story, you can see that something's going to happen in the future. So yeah, yeah I, I, often, I often think about that and think that maybe success isn't even interesting to people. Maybe it is, it is just the adversity and the struggle. And it's why a lot of people, especially serial entrepreneurs and people like that, they set up multiple businesses over and over and over. They set up a business, mm-hmm. get success, you usually sell it or, you know, step back uh, to, to a more mm-hmm. advisory role, then go mm-hmm. start the damn process all over again because it's the struggle that they really enjoy because that's the thing that interests us more than anything else. Totally, totally. And, and it's, it totally ties into what you were saying earlier and what we were talking about. People, they want the success, the vast majority of people, but the, the, the journey in there is interesting to them, but no one really wants to go through that. No one, no one, no one's going to say, Oh, I want to go through all those. I want to go through 20 years of struggles to, to build this amazing business. They want, they want to be there at the end already, which is just not possible. So the, the people who can, who can figure out a way to make that grind enjoyable in one way or another, and not all the time, but find the joy in it are the ones that are going to be able to excel in business and in different processes. I think that this talk about struggle often gets confused with this idea of hustling and working hard and hustle pawn is the phrase that I've heard over and over. <laughs> you know, the, the, this idea that all, all you're doing is promoting hard work. And it isn't, it isn't that. I mean, I, I work like 30 hours a week, 32 hours a week on mm-hmm. Genius Division, on my actual business. I do a lot of other stuff in my spare time, but that's just for fulfillment. That's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't consider myself somebody who works hard as such. But quite a few people do think I work hard. And it, and it isn't, it's not work. It's fulfillment. It's fun stuff. It's things that I'm doing on the side. A lot of people can't differentiate those two things. That, oh, you are sat at your computer recording a podcast on a Saturday at 12 noon this is work. No, it's not. I'm chatting to Bob. It's an interesting conversation. We're, you know, we, we, we're talking about things that really matter. This isn't a tough thing to do. This is what I want to spend my time doing. Do you know what I mean? People often consume, confuse those two things. Yeah. The hard, hard work is important. I, I promote people working hard, making sure that they, that they're pushing themselves to get better. And I, I think that, the the reason why people misconstrue that with what we're talking about or they they turn hard work into something that's that's not productive is because they think that just pushing through things gets you past something and gives you a result faster when hard work doesn't necessarily make things go faster it just makes things more efficient or a a better experience in the long run. You'd learn more from something when you work hard at it, because that means you're pushing. There's more, there's more friction points. There's more things that you have to go through. It's not that, Oh, I'm just going to work harder at this and I'll be done in a week instead of a year. It just, it doesn't work like that. It's the same concept. It's wanting to be too fast. And sometimes we just have to slow ourselves down. An example that you made me think of, it was that I was at a conference once. This must've been, 10 or 15 years ago, actually. And the person who was presenting pulled out this string or rope and they asked for someone to be a 
you know, a, a volunteer from the audience and they pulled out this rope and it was, uh, I forgot the numbers. I don't know if I can do the math in my head, but it was essentially it, it's the number of hours in a week. It was inches long and it, it was in inches over here in the U S. And so they spread this, this rope across the whole room. And it wasn't that big of a presentation. There was probably maybe a hundred people in there. It was a huge conference, but this was one of like the side rooms at the conference. Yeah. And the person held that out and the person was talking about the amount of time that he gets to work with the people or his students or, or people that he works with. And he, and he highlighted, like he colored part of the rope that was like two or three inches wide. And he said that I only can work with these people for two or three of these inches. You can do the comparison of how much time was there. And he said, my job is not to try to extend the rope. I can't, I can't put any more hours in the week. I can't even make the time that I have a chance to work with these people any longer. But what I can do is make that those specific hours more valuable. And I can make sure that the work that we're doing during that period of time is more effective. And so the lesson is the idea is not work harder and for a longer period of time and try to make your rope longer. The idea is to be in your zone for those 32 hours that you're working, Craig, or the 40 hours that someone's working at a nine to five job here or whatever, maybe it's 10 hours. I don't know, whatever it is, you want to make the, those specific hours more valuable. And the way you do that is you concentrate deeply on those most important things that we we're talking about earlier. You take those top two or three things, you make sure that you're doing things that you're effective at, that you enjoy, that bring you fulfillment so that all the other little things that you have to do don't drag you down. There's always going to be things that aren't exciting. Any job that you have, tasks that you that you take on. If you're an entrepreneur, absolutely. I'm learning this lesson. If you start a business, <laughs> there's definitely things that you're not going to want to do. But if the, if the majority of your time is spent in your zone, in your zone of desire, I was writing about this earlier too. You spend the time in the, in the zone, you'll be more productive. And I know that that's a buzzword too, but you literally will be more productive because you're more effective at the things you like doing. It'll be joyful. And then at the end, you, when you're relaxing, when you're taking that time off, you feel like, man, I did really well during that period of time. It was enjoyable. I can't wait to go back and do it again. Not, oh, it's Sunday afternoon. I, I don't want to go to sleep because I have to wake up and, and get to work on Monday morning. What a drag. You, you don't want that. I used to have that too. I used to have Sunday sadness, I used to call it. I don't have that anymore. I figured out how to, <laughs> figured out how to overcome my Sunday sadness. And it wasn't because I overcome, overcame being sad. It was just I eliminated what made me sad. Yeah. Sunday sadness and Monday blues and then Friday ecstaticness. <laughs> yeah. If you feel that's a great point. If you feel like if you're the TGIF type of thank God it's Friday type of person and you're just so relieved that the week is over, I don't want to be critical, but there might be some adjustments you could make so that you're not so manic on Friday and so depressive on Monday. Yeah. So, so, so what's the book about and when's it coming out? Yeah. Good question. The book, the book, <laughs> the working title, I actually, I haven't even worked through the title yet. This is not a good sign that I don't even know what I'm going to call my book, but the working title is personal finance in a public world. So uh, it's a little bit of a collision of my recent experience with technology and social media and, and in the past 15 months and how I've really seen it change and change my life a bit and my technical studies, if you will, in, in the personal finance world. So it's really about how technology and social and some of the things we're talking about today 
It's how those things affect how we make money decisions. And one of the, one of the top stressors, if not the top stressor for a lot of people in the research I did is money. And so my goal is to help people de-stress a little bit. So I think, not, I think I've proven it. I've got the research. I've, I've talked with multiple experts in all these fields, but technology is ultimately affecting our psyche. And so if we can use it for more positive reasons in our life, specifically for financial things, then we will be able to live a happier, healthier life, longer, healthier life, because we'll have better relationships. And that's, and that's what it's all about. I really want to help people, people get there. I know I've seen it in my life, um, been able to use technology for more positive reasons and just make wiser decisions with, with money. It's not, it's not a personal finance book, teach you how to invest. It's not, this is how to buy insurance. It's not how to make a quick buck. It's touches on all those personal finance subjects, but it's designed to help you feel more comfortable with making money decisions because you're using technology for positive reasons and not letting it distract you and be tempting and, and those sort of things that I think we, we all get distracted by in social media these days. So what's the point about social media affecting your psyche then? Well, the, the research that I did shows that people are drawn to social media because of entertainment or educational purposes, which is great. And I think that's why we can use it for good reasons. But what happens is, is the, the, our feeds, if you will, are so curated these days with things that provide us stimulation that that's part of the reason why we want things faster, but is also the reason why we are more likely to assume that the things that we see rise above from a credibility and necessity standpoint, because we, those are, they're predisp- we're predispositioned to enjoy those things for whatever reason you could, we can go into hours of discussion about this, if not longer, but we see social media as something extremely valuable, which yes. it is, but because of the ad space and the way the algorithms and systems work, they're curated for things that stimulate us immediately. So we're more likely to take action on those things. And so we need, in my opinion, and it's what the book will explain, is how to curate our feeds and use the technology for things that are actually helpful to us and more enjoyable. So that when it's time to make major, even not even major, any type of little money decision, we can avoid decision fatigue. We can create good, we talked about habit loops earlier. We can create positive habit loops so that when we're talking about making purchases or lending, borrowing money, making decisions on investing, all of those type of things, we can use the technology to create positive habit loops, de-stress ourselves, and be able to do the things we love, be able to have podcasts, be able to talk about the things that we really enjoy rather than stressing about, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen multiple people in my life when there's a, when, when something happens in their financial life and it's causing stress on them, it affects them all it affects their whole life. It's not just, okay, well, I can't pay my bills. So everything else is fine. I'll just go about, no, it affects their work, affects their relationships, affects their free time. It just, it's, it's much better to have a healthy relationship with those things. Well, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky to, to not be in a situation these days where I particularly struggle with money, but it's one of the basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. And mm-hmm. you, you, you sometimes forget, I mean, I'm, I'm in marketing and you forget this so often because you're doing marketing to people who are middle class and higher. 
you forget that some people are struggling just to make ends meet. They're struggling to put food on the table. And you forget mm-hmm. that. And it's often hard to get back into that mind space and, and, and think about that. You're completely right. And I think that is where social media and these other things can be really, really dangerous. Not just because you're vulnerable, you know, you, maybe you've got money worries and things like that. It makes you vulnerable on a wider level, doesn't it? It makes you vulnerable mentally uh, to to other ideas, not just about money, but to, to things that you shouldn't even really be considering. For example, you might just Google something like a, how, how to make money. And mm-hmm. then before you know it, you're, uh, you're looking at all these courses and the course is only $700 and, uh, but you've got to renew it every year. Uh, or, or you get into the MLMs, you get into the multi-level marketing yeah. schemes and things like that. And before you know it, I was watching a documentary about it the other day, actually, particularly about LM, uh, MLMs. Uh, and the, the figure was shocking. Um, I think it was, let me try and get the percentage right. I think it was, I can't remember which one it was talking about now, but it was one of the most popular MLMs. Is it, what's it called? Neutral Life? Something like that. Uh, neutral Life? I don't know. I'm... I, can't, I can't remember anyway. But they said that 97% of people made no money from it. Uh, that wow. They bought stock. They had a garage full of stock. Couldn't sell a penny of it. And then obviously it expires. So they just lose mm-hmm. massive amounts of money. So you you end up when you are vulnerable, you approach the internet in a very different mindset, don't you? And you're looking for the wrong kind of things. It's a dangerous place to be at that point. I'd argue at that point that social media isn't a force for good. No. Well, I, I've seen this in my life, in my professional life. I work, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the subject. I'm super passionate about it. There were so many families and, and individuals that I felt... <sighs> They, they thought they were doing good. They thought they were making good, wise decisions from a financial perspective in their life. And they would come to my team and I, and we would talk and, and we would, we would uncover, you know, they call it peeling back the onion. We would uncover all of these things. And I don't, no one, no one intentionally makes decisions to hurt themselves financially in the long term. But yeah. what happens is you get caught up and you get excited about certain things and you think they're going to change your life for the better, or they're going to bring you immediate joy. And you just, you do things that you don't even realize. And so it used to be back in even 10, 15 years ago, in my opinion, it was so easy to navigate the world, the, the ad space and the things that tempted you, right? I mean, when you watch television or listen to the radio, whatever it was, however many years ago, the ads that were on TV, 95% of them didn't mean anything to you because the only people that were, that were advertising were the companies with the most money, because that's what the, that's what the most popular shows would allow. They would, whoever is going to pay the most money for the ad space would, would do that. And that's how you got your entertainment. Otherwise, you know, there were magazines and the newspaper and those sort of things. But for the most part, your entertainment was your digital entertainment was television. And you would socialize with your friends outside of that or with them or, or outside of that. Now we're socializing with our friends. We're seeing ads, we're doing work. We're doing all these things on the internet. And the ads are not determined by the companies necessarily with the most money. The ads are actually determined by you. 
because the algorithms determine what it is that you're most interested in. And I tell this story about a buddy of mine had just moved down to Fort Lauderdale. This is fascinating to me. This is what like, this is one of the things that sparked my, this whole concept. He, he came down, he moved down from New Jersey, which, you know, it's about a three hour flight from here. So quite a ways moves down and I hadn't seen him in years. And he's like, oh, you know, we should do dinner or lunch or something. And I was like, well, I'm not doing anything tonight. You want to, maybe we can hook up tonight. I haven't seen you in a while, you know, we'll, we'll hang out. And he's like, no, I actually, I'm, I'm cooking myself dinner right now. And I was like, you're cooking yourself dinner, dude. You just moved from out of state. You're in an apartment that you're renting. How are you cooking anything? Why don't you just, you know, call Uber Eats or something or DoorDash or any one of these companies that'll bring you food. And he's like, no, I have this oven. And I was like, well, I'm sure you have an oven. He's like, no, 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 not like a regular oven, but a pour, like a small, you know, fast cook oven type of thing. And he, he sent me a link to it. I went to the website I looked at it for like 20 seconds. I'm like, okay, this is not my type of thing, but I see where he's coming from. It's easy. You just throw something in the oven, you press the button, you come back 20 minutes later, it's cooked. And I went to sleep that night, not even thinking about it. Woke up the next morning and I swear that stupid oven was chasing me around the internet for the rest <laughs> of the day because it knew that I looked at it and it's, it knew we were texting about it or whatever. And so my point was the things that we look at are going to follow us around the internet. So they're that much more tempting for us to make purchasing decisions or investment decisions. This is a huge thing in my industry right now. It's we've gamified investing. We've made it into a game so that people want to compete with each other and they want to, they want to feel like they're at this high level of sophistication and they're doing, they're completing transactions that only you know, 10 years ago that you had to have specific licenses and specific access to do. Now we can all do it. We can all trade options. We can all try to make a million dollars on GameStop overnight. We can all buy cryptocurrency at any time during the day. Right. I mean, I could hang up, I can hang up our phone call right now in the middle of the Saturday and I can start, I can purchase Dogecoin if I want. Right. You can do all these things so easily and they've gamified it as opposed to making it an experience where you're actually learning something in the process. So I think that's why we have to consider technology as a threat. But my goal is to make sure that people can use it. Well, there are tools that would actually enable you to do those, make those transactions in a positive, effective, intelligent way. But we have to make sure that we, <laughs> we spend the right time learning how to do that. I, threats a strong word, but I think you're completely right. I, like I said, I work in this industry. I know exactly how this all works. I know the dirty tricks of the industry that people are using that are available to anybody now. You only, you can spend as little as, I think the limit is $10 or $5 with Facebook advertising. You can get these adverts on, on Facebook and Instagram to millions, if not billions of people within minutes. All of this is possible for anybody. The budgets are non-issue anymore. But I think the wider the wider problem, and you kind of touched on it, but you didn't use his exact words, is misinformation. And it's just the amount of information that's out there now. And the fact that anybody can write anything and anybody can say anything and anybody can make a YouTube video or a blog or whatever or a listicle type article, seven reasons why you should invest in Dogecoin, like you said. Mm. Anybody can write this thing. And you need, these days, I believe, and I think it's only getting worse, you almost need like a, a master's degree in misinformation to understand yeah. 
what is happening to you here. It's so, so tough now on the internet to find a reliable resource on pretty much anything. If, if I was to say, you know, I, I'm a big watch guy, and if I was to say I'm, I'm looking for a new watch and I had a particular brand and watch in mind, say it's, I don't know, it's not going to be a Rolex. <laughs> I'll never have a Rolex, but say it's a Rolex Submariner, for example. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to purchase a Rolex Submariner. So I might Google, I don't know, uh, Ro- Rolex Submariner review. Maybe I'd Google that to begin with. And now I'm faced with hundreds of resources. The majority of them are running affiliate links. The majority of them are not an independent resource on telling me whether the Rolex Submariner is a good purchase or not. You know, that's that's subjective as to whether it's a good purchase or not. Um, probably the watch sure. example is the worst one. But if I was to think about anything else, you know, if I was looking to buy a new car, for example, it's so difficult for me to find an independent resource that isn't getting paid by the companies that are going to tell me the truth about whether I should buy the car or not. And and that extrapolates out to everything, from from finance to anything. And to navigate all that, it's huge and it's difficult. And we've seen it across everything from coronavirus to politics to, to money advice like you're experiencing, even down to the design agency that I work in. Everybody walks through the door as an expert now. And and they, they'll tell you things that are just patently wrong, but they've read it online. And there's, and, and sifting through all that information is just, and, and trying to find the, the sources that are the most credible is so hard. And I think the specialization, the niche advertising, I, not even niche advertising, the niche, just, just niching down businesses. I think those are the ones that are going to be the most successful as we continue to move on time because you can't be an expert in everything. It can seem like it on the internet, but the most credible sources of information are the ones that are going to be hyper-focused on a specific area. I don't know what it's like in the marketing industry. I, I know that's, that's your field, but I, I just, I, I would think or imagine that the more that we can hyper-focus our areas, like those are the people that are going to be known for specific areas that you can go for information as opposed to, Hey, like using the car example, like instead of there being going to, uh, one, one of these magazines or websites that review cars and they review every single car. Right. And maybe they have affiliate links and maybe, you know, there's advertisers all over the car companies are advertising on those pages. But instead of that, maybe you decide, okay, I'm looking for an SUV or a sedan or a car, this type of car. Then you go to the website or the, the specialist or the person who's an expert in providing information on specifically those types of cars. And that way, it's a little bit easier to narrow things down because otherwise like right now, speaking of, speaking of cars, I, my, one of, one of our cars has 150,000 miles on it. Thing is riding like a dream, but I'm thinking, you know, this thing ain't going to last forever. We probably need to look for one. And I went on the internet and I, I just typed in, I don't even remember what I searched for, but it was way too general. And I was like, Oh my gosh, there's there's a, 800 results. Like, how am I going to figure this out? I was so overwhelmed and it's just not my wheelhouse, but I totally hear what you're saying. There's just too many, there's too much information. It's great. It's a blessing and a curse. Ultimately, like you to be able to sift through it is just too hard. It it is. I think there's going to be a backlash and I'm already seeing backlashes on this kind of thing in some places. I'm part of a discord community that 
kind of shuns technology to some extent um mm-hmm. that tries to get back to more human analog mechanical connections reading a real book versus a kindle all that kind of thing um mm-hmm. and I, th- I think we'll start to see a backlash on it as as we go further and further down the line because i, I don't we we can't function as humans like this we we, we don't ho- we don't all have the master's degree in misinformation and i'm only so aware of this kind of thing because i'm in it and even i get caught out and drawn into these techniques that marketing companies are using because the, the simple fact one of the simplest rules of advertising and um, an old rule from years ago is that it only takes 10, 10 times for you to see something for you to want to have it that thing can happen potentially within hours now. You can get shown the same advert on Twitter 10 times. Now you're desiring something you never previously wanted at all in your life, but you're you're seeing it over and over and over. Peloton was one of the big ones. I did end up buying a Peloton, but it... it, You fell for it. Yeah, maybe I fell for it. I love the thing, but... Peloton was one of the biggest ones I saw. I saw adverts across Facebook, Instagram, constantly about Peloton over and over and over. And eventually, you cave into that. Even if you know what's happening, you cave yeah. into that. It's well, crazy. And I think some people have a little bit of fear of missing out. I mean, they see it over and over again. They just It just feels like it's so big and so important and people are talking about it. It goes viral and even if it's not an ad, people are just talking about it. You're like, Oh, I got to get myself a Peloton. I think there's a lot of products like that and the ones that can rise above. But I I mean, if you think about it, uh, money also, I believe this about money, but I I think technology is a tool. And if we can look at it as a tool, as opposed to a way of life, that's, that's better. And I, I worry about these younger generations. They talk about how they grew up with technology and this is the technology generation, or this is the iPhone generation, whatever it might be. And I worry, I, I would never want to be put in a box that all I know is technology. I think technology, the great thing about it is that it enables us to do things that we want to do more efficiently. It enables us to get information faster, but it's not the information. It's not the actual process. It's just assisting in it, right? Like if if I'm using, like it makes total sense for me to use my phone as a note-taking application because that way I don't have to pull out a pen and pen, you know, write it down. But if it's the only way that I know how to gather information, then that's when there's a problem. Yeah. That was, that was well, this a, is, a weird a weird way to go in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I just, I appreciate, I, I really appreciate talking with someone like you, Craig, because I don't, you know, I lived in this financial box for 12 years, to be honest with you, you know, grinding on numbers and yeah. calculations and projections and trying to help people with their emotions too. There's emotional component to that as well, but it's a very, very restricted, um, regulated industry. And so this past, like I said, 15 months or so, being able to communicate with more people that have, uh, you know, different experiences has been really, really fascinating to me to understand that the human psyche from a, from a different perspective. I mean, you put a lot of hours, a lot of time into thinking about one of the most stressful things for people. And then all of a sudden you're kind of opened up, you have a little bit more freedom and my creative juices have been flowing like crazy. And I'm learning this lesson 
in spades over the past few months about how it's very, very easy to get distracted by everything going on out there because there's so many things you can get into now, like quickly, you can find information immediately and feel like you've reached the the plateau of latent potential, which is a concept of that James Clear talks about. Um, the author James Clear wrote the book Atomic Habits. I'm sure many people have heard of it before. It's a pretty popular book, but the plateau of latent potential is this point that you get to when all of the work that you've done previously is realized that you didn't see before. And most people will struggle to get there because you don't see the rewards for the little bit of work that you've done. You have, you're, you're making progress, but you don't realize it until you get to that plateau because at that plateau, it suddenly opens up another world of opportunity within that discipline that you're working on. And most people don't get there because it's hard. It's hard to work at something for six months, 12 months, a year without seeing any progress. And that is that concept hit me hard because there's so many things in this world now that will provide us immediate information that we think we know what we're doing, but we don't have the experience to active, to actually reach that plateau of latent potential. But if you if you're consistent and you can get to that plateau, all of a sudden it's like, bam, whoa, that past six months of work, I see all the progress I've made. All of a sudden now what was latent or what was unrecognizable is now evident in my life. And so you want to get to that plateau. And this digital age makes us think we can get there faster than we actually can. And that is a great way to end because that is both adversity and fulfillment wrapped up in one neat, neat little box. <laughs> you got it. Is there anything final you want to say, plug, talk about? You've got about thirty seconds. I got thirty seconds now, man. Just just check me out on on the on the, on the interwebs at, at BDP on Twitter. And that's it, man. Just uh, you can get all my information there. I appreciate, it, man. This has been a great conversation. Get yeah. doing things. <laughs> yeah, it's been awesome. I'll put some links to your stuff in there. Uh, I, th- I think you're doing great stuff, and I I'm really actually looking forward to reading the. Th- the book that you're talking about when you finally get it done because there isn't anybody talking about that stuff and there is lots of industries right now that are suffering from the problems that we've discussed on this episode that need to start writing books about it yeah i i, well, I appreciate it coming coming from you that means a lot that 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 uh no one's no one's talking about it because I got a lot of people when I started the book saying, oh, this is, oh, there's a million finance books. There's a million books about technology. And I said, no, I think I got something here that's a little bit, a little bit different. So uh, that's cool, man. It's been awesome. And I'll chat to you soon. All right. <laughs>